1: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. And many of you may be joining us, maybe having imbibed certain substances last evening and are feeling slightly delicate today. Well, this is quite an appropriate show for you because we are talking about the calamitous failure of the so-called war on drugs, which was officially announced by President Richard Nixon half a century ago. And the consequences ever since are more people taking drugs than ever before. Drug use globally has exploded. So has problematic, what we could call problematic drug use, drug addiction, drug deaths. Uh, As well as that, we see mass incarceration, which has disproportionately fallen, uh, well, disproportionately meant the incarceration of people of colour, particularly we can see in the United States and elsewhere, which have a big prison population, a massive black population who've been incarcerated by a racist policy, which is the war on drugs, which we will be talking about. We've seen the destabilisation of entire countries, from Mexico to the Philippines with violent government policies, which, again, have killed so many people. Uh, We've seen people who need actual support and health not getting it, instead of it being treated as a health issue, being treated, of course, as a criminal issue. So the reason we're talking about it, and we've got lots of areas to talk about, is in Scotland, the government has suggested, or, or will be, uh, has has made it clear they will not be prosecuting some people who are found with Class A drugs on them, and instead, what will happen is they will um, they will get a caution, for example, a police warning uh, or, or a police warning of some description. So this opens up a conversation because you'd think if we had maybe an opposition which perhaps wanted to suggest an alternative workable policy. And I should make it clear in Scotland, Scottish Labour is supporting the Scottish Nationalist Party in their policy shift. But Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, is not. And he's making it clear he he does support the continued repressive um, drugs policies, which have failed on their own terms. Of course, it should also be noted that we have a Conservative government full of ministers who have openly, in some cases, Made it clear they have themselves taken drugs in the past. So they enforce policies which disproportionately lock up young black men, whilst they themselves, of course, face no consequences, life changing consequences for black people who are, when they are far more likely to be stopped and searched on suspicion of drugs, and if found with drugs, far more likely uh, to suffer uh, the justice system in, as a consequence. But of course, these cabinet ministers, white, disproportionately privileged uh, men, they didn't face those consequences. It should also be noted that Dominic Cummings, mischievous elf that he is, has made it clear that currently Tory politicians are taking drugs, and the Prime Minister is fully aware of that. So the hypocrisy is never ending. I should also say, having worked in the British media for 10 years, many journalists who will go out and use their poison pen often to support these policies, let's be honest, they themselves are partial as well to many of these substances. This is a debate riddled with painful hypocrisy. And many politicians know privately that this is a a catastrophic failure. Uh, David Cameron, before he became prime minister, said that the war on drugs was a failure, and yet it tightened still further under his premiership. So we're talking about that today, but as well later, we're talking about the case of Julian Assange. He faces extradition, and we were talking about the LGB Alliance's conference, including a disco, which was, I think the straightest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. We've got a lot to talk about, very eclectic topics. Um, but also you can listen on the, obviously on the podcast. A lot of people just listen to on the podcast. Do subscribe on that. Uh, press subscribe on the YouTube link as well. you get the videos and the documentaries we're doing, like the Tory conference video we did, the Labour conference video we did. We have a video coming out, I think, next week now about wealth and power in Britain. Very much looking forward for that. That's supported by you. Our team on union wages uh, on patreon.com forward slash Jones 84 and you can contribute whatever you want, uh, even three quid a month or whatever, and that allows us to make those documentaries, do the podcast, do these videos, do lots of the interviews that we've got coming up as well. That is enough for me. I'm now going to bring in the esteemed uh, Professor David Nutt, Chair of Drug Science, the former drug advisor, of course, and um, this is very important, who was sacked by the then Labour Home Secretary, Alan Johnson. And we'll we'll explain, well, I'll let David explain. David, firstly, it's a big honor to have you. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Now, I mean, you must be sick to death of talking about this. This happened 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And you made comments which are just basic, just basic objective facts, Mm -hmm. which the science, um, well, I'll let you explain what happened. What did you say and what happened? And in the meantime, because that happened, as I say, 12 years ago, how Mm -hmm. have things changed?
2: Well, things have got worse under the Tory government, but it was particularly irritating to be sacked by a Labour government. Was, I've always had a quite strong left-wing socialist leanings, and it was a kind of rather you know, particularly disappointing to be sacked by, uh, by as I say, a Labour government, which actually at that to that point had been doing some relatively sensible things about uh, treating drug addiction, but was still. Um, completely uh, besotted with the war on drugs in terms of preventative measures. So, you know, that failed program that you um, you, you highlighted initially. And why I was sacked? Well, the bottom line was I I did two things wrong, according to Alan Johnson. The first was I dared to say that ecstasy was less harmful than horse riding. And that truly got... (laughs) the right-wing media and the um, the establishment hysterical uh, and then a, a few months later we looked at uh, the sketch we did a, a detailed assessment of the different drug harms and came to the conclusion that alcohol was the most harmful drug in the UK in, largely because it's one of the most widely used drugs or is the most widely used drug um, and, uh, and and so it has the biggest impact on society uh, And uh, when I went on the uh, Radio for Today program and said, well, alcohol is clearly more harmful than LSD. The world went mad because to actually talk about LSD in the same sentence as alcohol is is, it's like, you know, saying that the the Pope is gay or something. It was truly it it was completely bizarre. I was on media all over the world. And um, and then they sacked me because they said I wasn't basically I wasn't uh, supporting government policy to which my response was, well, uh, my job as a scientist is to direct the government to the right policy. And if the policy is self-evidently wrong, how can I support a policy that is clearly wrong? But that didn't matter because, uh, of course, the drugs policies had never, ever written based on anything other than politics. That The concept of harm reduction, or the concept of a, a proportionate assessment of drug harms in terms of developing classifications, that's never, ever entered into the debate ever since we started to have serious approaches to drug policy, which have probably started in about the 1860s. It's all been about politics with a large uh, buttering of, um, of self-interest, particularly from drinks industry largely, and maybe some pharmaceutical companies.
1: So, and I should say as well, I forgot to say, for those who want to put questions to David not you super chat on YouTube and you can directly ask him. But Scotland, uh, so the reason we're talking about this is in Scotland they've announced that they won't prosecute some uh, who some people who have Class A drugs on them for personal possession, basically. Yes. So how important is that? How much of a shift actually is that? And we'll come on after that. I'll ask you about Labour's position in Westminster because it should be noted, as I said, there's a consensus north of the border between the Scottish Nationalist Party and the Scottish Scottish Labour Party, but that does not, of course, apply in Westminster
2: so what the scottish uh lord advocate has said is that it, it will be acceptable now it will be policy that people who are caught in possession of any drug including and that was the breakthrough class a drugs they can be dealt with administratively rather than through the criminal um, system so they can be given a caution or um encouraged into treatment or, or some other kind of um, uh, educational based therapy. Now this is a really remarkable advance because it is decriminalization. And uh, and we have known now for for nearly 18 years that decriminalization is a good thing, particularly for people who use very dangerous class A drugs. And we know that from the Portuguese experiment. Uh, and I suppose one simple statistic which is so relevant to Scotland, in the 18 years of the Portuguese experiment, decriminalizing personal possession of all drugs and putting people into treatment or into other forms of, uh, of help has reduced deaths from opiates, from heroin largely, to a third of what they were when they brought in the policy 18 years ago. And in the UK, in the same period, our deaths have gone up by nearly doubled, over two-thirds, so our policy of criminalizing drug users has actually massively increased deaths. <laughs> and the reason for that is because many people who are using drugs uh, are getting them on the black market. In fact, most are. And the black market is changing now. The black market is changing from heroin. It's moving more towards drugs like fentanyl, which are more toxic. Uh, and that, and also decriminalizing drugs um, drug use allows people to get back into work get back into other forms of uh, of social engagement criminalizing them just puts them in prison and where they essentially learn very little and um often relapse to drug use in prison or as soon as they leave
1: so keir starmer the labor leader who of course formerly the cps crown prosecution mm-hmm. service he has made it clear that uh Labour in Westminster will not back the rollout of this approach to the rest of the UK. What does that tell us?
2: Well, there's different ways of looking at it. I mean, the, the simple way is they say that you know, as a prosecutor, you know, you use a hammer analogy as a prosecutor, you know, if prosecutor to a hammer, everything's a nail. To a prosecutor, everything needs to be prosecuted. So I think it will be quite challenging for him to admit he was wrong all those years he was putting people away. And let's just remember this. We have doubled our prison population in the last 40 years. That doubling has all been due to drug crime. And other countries with more rational policies, like the Netherlands, are closing prisons because they they don't put people with drug problems in prison at all. And the same with Portugal. Portugal has massively reduced its prison population through its decriminalisation approach. So Starmer, partly, I guess, historic, he believes that, that strong law is going to work Uh, I think he's also probably frightened that it'll be an open up and a a place for him or Labour to be easily attacked by, again, the right-wing press. Uh, It may just be he just doesn't know the evidence very well. But uh, I'm sure there are people, I have spoken to the Fabian Society about this and other people in Labour. I'm sure there are people in Labour who could educate him if he wanted to listen. So I think this probably is politics, again, as I said you know, a few minutes ago, drug laws are about politics, they're not about drugs, they're not about harms, they're about trying to establish opposition with, as a sort of moral authority in the country. And uh, I think he's just, you know, continuing to you know, go down the same misguided path that, that Brown and Blair and Cameron and all the others have done.
1: I mean, the thing, you know, as I, as I noted before, David Cameron, before he became Prime Minister, I actually wrote a column a few years ago saying David Cameron was, you know, I agree with David Cameron. David Cameron was yeah. absolutely right in what he said before he became Prime Minister, right. that the so-called war on drugs was a failure. And then what happened under his premiership? The war on drugs only increased. Further criminalization of yeah. so-called illegal highs, for example. So That's would true. you say, I mean, I don't know if you know from maybe what politicians, maybe you've spoke to politicians privately who will say one thing and then and, and not be willing to say it publicly. Is it your view that most politicians actually know this is a failure? I mean, they 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 do actually have to see the consequences of the so-called war drugs in their own constituencies. They see the impact. Do you think they just, they know it's a failure? They just don't have the courage, and they fear being monstered by the country's self-appointed moral guardians, the Daily Mail, and so on?
2: Exactly. Well, yeah, so there are t- t- two things to say about that. The first is, until recently, until we got the really hard-line Puritans in the Home Office up but Certainly under the coalition and in under Labour, it was almost de rigueur that when a a drug minister stood down, he put his hands up and said, "May I culpa? I got it wrong. I got it wrong." I mean, you know, I've got a series of quotes from a whole range of drug ministers saying they got it wrong. Um, and but under Theresa May and uh, and uh, and now, um we we the drug ministers now, I think are. are going back into the sort of Nixon mode of, of thinking that you can criminalize people yourself out of this problem. And that is absolutely ridiculous. We, you know, we you you illustrated it in your introduction. We have, the war on drugs has failed. And, and just let me remind people, the war on drugs started as a way of Nixon getting elected. Uh, and we have perpetuated it in this country because we're so behoven to the US. I mean, one thing people don't realize, until the 2016 Psychoactive Substances Act, Every single drug law in Britain was made at the behest of America. The Misuse of Drugs Act, which took, med- took cannabis out of the medical pharmacopoeia, was forced through because of American pressure. The banning of CAT a few years ago was under American pressure. Basically, they have made our drug laws, and it's time we stood up to them and said, no, we, should, we, no, we want to do things differently. And, and decriminalising would be a good way forward.
1: Where were we at with uh, psychedelics, for example? Well, here's an interesting yeah, an
2: interesting case in point. So these drugs were, they were the first victim of the war on drugs. They were revolutionizing many aspects of, of therapy, um, particularly difficult to treat problems like addiction. I mean, paradoxically, these, these drugs are not addictive. People think they are because they're controlled in Schedule 1, but they're not addictive. There were six trials of LSD to treat alcoholism. Um, in the 1950s and 60s they showed it's the most powerful treatment for alcoholism there's ever been but they got sucked into the war on drugs and for 50 years they've not been studied we've started using them again it's proved very difficult very painful very expensive because of the bureaucracy but we've shown you know they can have radical benefits in terms of people with severe depression But, but getting to do the research And uh, it's very difficult. It takes years to get permissions to do any study because they're still controlled drugs and they're still seen as very dangerous.
1: On that, David Barwatter asks, how much has the war on drugs stifled research into the potential medical applications of these drugs, uh, cannabis and cancer, for example? So you just talked about the medical application, of psychedelics, but more
2: broadly. Totally. The, The war on drugs is the worst censorship of research in the history of the world. 50 years, people have not been able to research the value of drugs like cannabis, psychedelics, uh, MDMA is it is is unbelievably regressive because all these drugs were medicines and they still have medical value. But millions of people's lives have been essentially limited because we haven't been allowed to study them appropriately. It is it is the worst censorship of research in the history of the world.
1: We we've mentioned obviously Scotland and, and and Portugal. I mean, how much are there bright other bright examples in the world which people here can draw on to show that ending the war on drugs, there is an alternative? And what what you know, what what can we see in terms of the consequences of those approaches?
2: I mean, look at look at the netherlands the Netherlands coffee shop approach they were the first country to stand up to the to the un which of course was an american uh, hegemony uh, by saying we're going to allow people to smoke cannabis in coffee shops and have a small amount for personal possession they didn't legalize cannabis they just effectively decriminalized small amounts and why did they do that because they wanted to separate the cannabis market from the heroin and cocaine market hugely successful intervention they had much, much lower levels of young people using heroin than, than we had, and therefore many fewer deaths. So that's one really good example. Now, more recently, and a very exciting development has come through with the Oregon vote last November when Oregon voted to basically decriminalize possession of magic mushrooms. And uh, and, and also they're proposing to set up a statewide facility for people to have access to that therapy if they need it. So given the fact that you know, the US over two-thirds of Americans now have access to recreational cannabis and uh, even more to medical cannabis. You know, America, through the statewide initiatives, is actually leading the, the, prog- the world here now. And, you know, we should try to catch up because it's our patients that are suffering, not, uh, not our people who are using the drug recreationally
1: very basic question, but it is, I mean, it is just the, it, this is just always what gets thrown at you whenever you talk about this. And I, I was on this panel show I often do, um, the other day talking about the failure of the so-called war on drugs and the, the kind of the, the right-wing panelists, let's put it that way. Their, the default argument is always essentially you're going to turn children into drug addicts. Obviously harm mm-hmm. to children is always often the fallback of many different groups. we're talking about one later that has the same rhetoric yeah yeah. but that's what their argument is basically if this will all of a sudden mean drugs are so widely available as though you can't just text someone and get drugs within probably about half an hour not that i mean encouraging everybody to do so but if that's the idea that basically this is going to lead to massive addiction amongst young people across the country if if we were to change the law what would you say to that
2: well, I'll say the evidence is exactly the opposite. The evidence is in the Netherlands that fewer people use cannabis and what they use is less harmful to them because they know what they're getting. And in Portugal, fewer people are dying from heroin. And uh, the reality is, as you said, access to drugs has never been stopped by prohibition. Uh, and what has happened is that the, the banning of some drugs has led to the generation of markets for more harmful drugs. So now we have the most potent of all opiates fentanyls getting into the market for both for opiates and for other drugs because uh, it's a way of with a way of circumventing the ban on heroin so so it's been a wrong approach ever since it was brought in which was back in the early 1900s
1: uh we've got i don't know if you know what's happening in wales alexander barnes asked will welsh labour follow scotland's lead mark drakeford who is the first minister uh seems relatively sensible i was just i mean on the conservative benches given they do have a massive majority do we see any potential supporters? I mean, I remember during the poppers debate, I forget his name. That's
2: right. Crispin Blunt. So Crispin is a very strong supporter of the uh, attempts to rationalize the drug laws, particularly for medical research. Yes, he's very, he's very supportive. I suspect there are a lot, well, we know that there are a lot of supporters, but they're not coming public yet because until there's a, a move to change, you know, it's just a risk to them. But I think it's, uh, I think the argument, the patient argument for, for access to therapy and um, is the one that's going to eventually drive change in terms of access to um, psychedelics and MDMA, both of which are fascinating new, new forms of therapy and to deny patients access to something when it, it with a law that actually isn't affecting recreational use at all is completely iniquitous.
1: So, just finally, I mean, what what's the strategy now as you see it? Obviously, you're one of the most prominent voices we have urging a rational approach to this. But what what do you see as the strategy? Given if we look at drugs laws, things since your sacking under Labour government, things have clearly got worse overall. There's obviously now the bright spot in, in Scotland, but how do you see the potential? strategy to reform there are
2: one or two other bright spots i mean up before scotland the one or two maybe three or four now um police commissioners and chief constables were effectively decriminalized personal possession of cannabis arguing that it was a waste of police resources to prosecute people who were using small amounts or growing a small number of plants for personal use so i think that should be rolled out you know it is utter waste of police time to prosecute people for having small amounts of of cannabis and that so that should be that should become a national standard i think i think rescheduling drugs like mdma and uh, and psilocybin from schedule one to schedule two will dramatically facilitate access for research and and, and broad, more broadly, we need we need some interventions like safe consumption rooms. Now, the, now Scotland does have a safe consumption room. It, it's a it's a van that drives into the middle of Glasgow each day, and people can take drugs there and be resuscitated if they come to harm. We should have those um, those in the UK as well because that will reduce the uh, deaths. And, and so, what the government we need to reframe our approach to drugs. We should our approach should be about harm minimization, <coughs> not about trying to reduce use because Reducing use, we've been doing that for 50 years and that's failed. So let's let's reduce the harms of drugs and accept that if people use drugs without harm, it's not really a criminal issue.
1: Professor David Knott, it's been such an honour to have you. History will, of course, vindicate you in the end. Uh, but you, you, you remain a calm, lucid voice of reason in this, perhaps, of all the debates. I was going to say the mostly rational debate, but having looked at the state of politics over the last few years, that's quite a high bar to pass, but it is an irrational discussion. But you've you have injected so much reason and sense. And thanks so much for answering the questions. And uh, keep thanks, keep Owen. Keep up the good work. You He's as going. well. Keep keep fighting. Lots of love. hold the establishment to account. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a team effort. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. cheers. Take care. Thanks. <laughs> <you. laughs> um, fantastic. stuff. thanks so much there for for, for David. Now, in terms of uh. Would, Just just so we're clear, we're talking later, obviously, about Julian Assange and the extradition, and we're also talking about the LGB Alliance, a very eclectic Sunday for all of us. But I'm very, very chuffed to bring in our next guest, uh, Kojo Karam, who is a lecturer in the Birkbeck Law Department. Am I getting that right in terms of how I describe that? Yes, like presumably. I've got the gist. Uh, A fantastic voice on these issues. When I did a shout-out on Twitter uh, asking for... For voices Kojo came up time and time again um and also my colleague at the Guardian Matthew Busby who's done some brilliant investigative journalism um on this whole issue and as I was saying before we came on kind of looks at the moment like he's in it looks like a psychedelic trip I'm just saying just looking at the video that's just it looks it's interesting that's all uh thanks so much for joining us both of you Kojo can I just start can I just start with you to uh, to kind of kick things off? And that's about, I suppose, the relationship of the left to this. And, you know, we have no shortage, obviously, of issues that we need to be talking about at the moment. Um, why is it so important the left takes a leading role in this debate and takes it seriously, I suppose?
3: I think... Um the reason why we need to have the left try and take ownership of drug policy reform is because if the left doesn't then the right will the drug policy reform is something that we're seeing being increasingly experimented with all across the world um uruguay the first country to legalize cannabis in 2013 since then we've had canada we've had many of the states in the u.s just had Luxembourg recently. Um, this is something that is happening and being engaged with all across the world, whether we think about decriminalisation, whether we think about diversion schemes, all of them concerned with this question of what do we do about drug policy. And it's not just the left that is um, contributing to this conversation. Obviously, with the commercial benefits that can be seen in cannabis legalisation, that's getting a lot of interest with kind of free market um right-wing institutions. The Adam Smith Institute has come out in support of cannabis legalisation, CDAM, the Institute of Economic Affairs, and these leads to a situation where we find ourselves having the conversation for drug policy reform being driven more by the right in the UK than by the left, and that could lead to real problems if reform is actually implemented, because it's not just about changing the laws on drugs. I mean, the idea of changing the laws on drugs is essentially quite depoliticized. It's probably one of the, probably the only thing that you might get political agreement from everyone from, say, Ash Sarker to Nigel Farage. Both of them have talked about drug policy reform, but it's about what does drug policy reform look like, And in the States, we've seen the multiple examples where the left have been involved and organized on the ground. We've seen drug policy reforms come along with commuting of sentences for prisoners so that people are able to have their criminal records erased. We've seen it come along with social equity programs, which have facilitated wealth transfer to over-police and over-imprisoned black population in the US. We've seen it come with um, licensing opportunities for communities that have been economically disadvantaged for generations. And then in other parts of the states, um, some of the early cannabis legalization states, particularly Colorado, where this wasn't, the left wasn't organized and didn't gain control of the conversation, we've essentially seen the creation of a very lucrative um, commercial cannabis industry whilst at the same time people are still serving out their sentences for being imprisoned. Um, people who are released from prison are part of the few people who are barred from being able to enter the legal Industry, So they're essentially punished twice, punished for um, uh, a kind of unjust war on drugs and then punished again by being excluded from this lucrative industry. And so if the left doesn't engage in that conversation, that could be recreated in the UK.
1: I mean, I, I spoke before, Matthew, about the irrationality of this whole debate, and you've just done a brilliant piece of investigative work uh, for VICE and this is about how the British government ignored secret recommendation from its own drug experts. So this is the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs back in 2016 uh, to decriminalise five years ago's drug-related death spiral. So you just want to explain what that what what, what you found basically, and what what it kind of signifies.
4: Sure, thanks, Owen. And, and yeah, apologies for the the reflection on my phone. <laughs> no, um... I love it. It's atmospheric. <laughs> um, yeah, so in in 2016 after the the psychoactive substances act was was passed um the chair of the acmd at the time um wrote to the government to the home office you know highlighting that um this new act you know didn't criminalize the use and possession of you know drugs such as spice and mamba and that therefore you know there was there was a pretty big contradiction between that and the terms of the misuse of drugs act which does criminalize um, drug use and possession so you know as as david outlined this is a 50 year old law um, and more enlightened thinking seemed to underpin the Active substances act in some respects so you know the chair pointed that out um, but I understand that, you know, the recommendation was dismissed, um, was given short shrift. And, you know, five years later, we're in the position we are now. Um, it's also worth mentioning that, remarkably, these recommendations weren't made public at the time. Um, even even the chair seemed to um, acknowledge that it was quite controversial. Um, so... Yeah, we have these recommendations happening behind closed doors, um, and that only only came to light, you know, after a whistleblower came to me and told me about the report, which I made a Freedom of Information request um, to obtain, and, you know, amid lengthy delays, you know, that took about a year and a half, the Home Office has eventually garnered the support of the Information Commissioner um, to... Yeah, not disclose the reports.
1: I mean, on that, Koja, I mean, what's your kind of your your response to that? But also, what it says about the fact that actually in the US there has been more movement um, in many states than than here in than here in Britain. Because actually, as Professor David not actually points out, a lot of our own drug laws have been directly influenced by the overall so-called U.S. war on drugs, which President Nixon most famously declared 50 years ago as part of his re-election efforts, um, as was also pointed out. So wh- why have we ended up in that situation where, as Matha points out, the drug experts the government relies on have made it clear this is, this is a disastrous approach they have at the moment. Why has it, it moved the dial so much more in the U.S. than here?
3: Well, I think it's really helpful to try and kind of put our understanding of drugs in a historical context in order to understand why ideology continues to drive drug policy in um, opposition to the actual evidence that often the government's own experts are providing them. Um, We need to remember that this idea of drugs, this idea of this collection, of psychoactive substances that are so damaging to humans that the mere consumption of which can facilitate the destruction of society is a very recent idea. You know, as Professor Nutt was mentioning, um, it really emerges around the turn of the 20th century, and it's very much tied to the emergence of America as an international force. It's one of the first um, legal treaties that America initiates is the 1909 Shanghai Opium Commission. And prior to that, The trade in drugs was one of the main um, commodities that European empires traded around the world. The East India Corporation, the PO shipping company, the opium wars, you know, 19th century, Queen Victoria, Britain's own queen is the, you know, the world's Pablo Escobar, essentially. (laughs) And um, where you have that change in the United States is very much tied to its own dynamics of kind of racial purification, paranoia around racial hierarchy I'd recommend any of your listeners to just have a look at some of the headlines from around the turn of the 20th century on drugs look at the new york times 1914 article um which is titled negro um cocaine fiends the new southern menace which talks about how cocaine is making black people in the south of america impervious to bullets um York's available for anyone to check out on LA Times article mm-hmm. in 1905, mm-hmm. Delirium and Death, which talks about how, you know, the Mexicans entering to California, bringing these um, cannabis substances that are that are destroying the local population and enslaving the minds of the um, of, of the good American people. Um, this is really the kind of dynamic that, in, that the, the war on drugs emerges through. And it has a real stranglehold over not just American policy, but also international policy through the UN and through the INCB and the other institutions that David mentioned for most of the twentieth century. But what we've seen over the last over the last real ten years in the United States of America is organization around racial justice and against mass incarceration on the ground. Um, leading to essentially um, popular referendums in a lot of the states, Colorado, California, Alaska, Massachusetts. Um, The ability for, for people on the ground to be able to put the question of drug legalization on a referendum ballot has led to states changing the laws in the United States of America, even though the federal government still hasn't yet taken that step. And so we started to see um, yeah, not just cannabis legalisation, but as Professor Nutt mentioned, the decriminalisation of all drugs in Oregon um, at the last um, you know, 2020 electoral cycle, um, leading to a different direction that the US is taking. Whilst in the UK, because we have a much more centralised Westminster based um, authority, we don't have that same mechanism of kind of grassroots popular democracy to be able to change the laws on those levels. And so if we have a Home Secretary like we do at the moment in Priti Patel, who constantly talks about how she wants to make example out of middle-class cocaine users, despite most of her colleagues confessed users, um, then you're not going to get the kind of change in the UK that we've seen in the US and in other parts of the world.
1: I mean, on that, even though obviously the position is quite bleak, Matthew, I'm quite interested in a piece you wrote actually for the Bristol Cable. We've had their journalist on before, actually. Um, where so the Home Office is very clear; it says it has no plans to decriminalise drugs. But and these are small chinks of light, but that it's worth at least interrogating it. So there's a there's a pilot project in Bristol, five million pound pilot project uh, to get more people into treatment, prevent reoffending, being backed by the Home Office. You just want to explain a little bit about that and
4: maybe what it can what it represents sure and uh, as david outlined um with the police force led you know decriminalization schemes for for first offenders you know that this just dovetails with with that and it it's kind of the home office doing doing catch-up work um the second word of of the acronym ADDA project ADDA is, is diversion um and diverting people away from the criminal justice system is, is is in effect decriminalization but obviously as as the the vice story showed there hasn't been any repeal of, of the subsection of the misuse of drugs act that prohibits drug use and, and possession so yeah what we what we have now is i think about a dozen areas of, of the country including bristol um, that have received you know some central funding to improve treatment programs um to reduce reoffending and as as part of this raft of measures there is you know the acknowledgement fr- from the government of these um police decriminalisation schemes and you know they they're kind of um crafting this policy to to complement to complement that um, and as you say, yeah, it's, pe- people will look at it as, as a, as a chink, chink of light, um, and yeah, it does highlight a pretty stark, you know, con- contradiction between you know the oft trumpeted line um, that you know we have no plans to decriminalise drugs, when you know, in, you know, it, it, in effect, it's it's palpably um, untrue.
1: In terms of drug prohibition, it's very important we. We call it that as well because, in the popular imagination, prohibition is acknowledged in terms of alcohol in the United States as a, as a catastrophic failure because of the consequences it had in terms of the criminal industry it boosted, in terms of people dying because they took impure versions of alcohol. I'll um, just quickly as well because Kojo's in a public place, so we need to be careful here because he probably he's, I don't suddenly really get him kicked out of the pub he's using just quickly while he when he talks to them. Um, I'll just check with Kojo, make sure that's okay. But in terms of drug prohibition and racism, I mean, we've touched on this already, but do you just want to explain a bit more? And by the way, Kojo, if you need to leg it shortly, let, let me know as well, because Kojo's on his travels. He's out to Warrington, my part of the world, um, but he is. Uh, he probably has to leg it soon. So just, just let me know. But go for it, Kojo, sorry. Drug prohibition and racism.
3: Um, well, I think that, um, you know, in addition to some of the stuff that I just mentioned before, you know, that's the kind of historical legacy of you know the relationship between race and drug prohibition we can look at how that bleeds into the contemporary makeup of mass incarceration both in the u.s um where it has been the real driver of putting black bodies into um you know ever expanding prison systems i really started thinking about drug policy where i um worked in louisiana and louisiana is a state where for two and a half pounds of marijuana you can receive up to 10 years in prison. Um, in the United States of America, you have um, 46% of all federal prisoners in 2019, according to the latest justice statistics, being in prison for drug offences. And um, whilst that's an extreme version, the US, UK is not too far behind um ministry of justice statistics 27 percent of all prisoners currently being held on remand um are being held on remand for drug offenses this is the largest percentage of all offenses and so it's the real driver of mass incarceration and the expansion of the prison system in not just the us and the uk but in a lot of other places around the world brazil colombia south africa um and that's before we start thinking about the, the 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 other Outside of um, kind of um, prison criminalization that happens with drug prohibition, we think about stop and search nine times more likely for black people to be stopped and searched for drugs. We can think about the way that a drug conviction can impact everything from your ability to um, access jobs to your ability to um, being able to have custody of your own children. These are all impacted by drug convictions and so there's an absolute architecture of um, social the isolation that can result from drug prohibition, and that has impacted disproportionately on people of colour in a number of different um, contexts all around the globe. And so this is part of the reason why the left needs to intervene in the conversation around drug policy, because that part of drug policy reform is not going to be as privileged by the uh, more commercial, more um, capitalist-focused drug policy reform that is being driven from the right um, with the cannabis Industry being estimated as turning over £22 billion in retail sales in 2022 um, across the world. This is something that is going to get the interest of, um, you know, any right-wing free marketer worth their salt. But the way that that would be implemented and the way that would be, um, you know, carried out, I think it's very different than if the left is driving it with questions of racial justice and economic justice at the forefront. The danger otherwise is to have a situation where you have a highly commercialized, highly lucrative um, legal cannabis industry, um, which is making a lot of money for people in the city of London or Wall Street. But at the same time, you actually have increased policing and increased incarceration of a, of, of a black market that continues to reproduce those racialized dynamics.
1: Just lastly, for both of you, um, drug decriminalisation and legalisation obviously are not the same thing. Uh, what so just if you sum up because I think Koji's got to go as well, but we just to wrap up the conversation. What's the, what's the difference? Where do you think those of us who want a change should be focusing our energies? Uh, yeah. So do you want to start with that, Math, in terms of decriminalisation, legalisation, and and where where we should stand and the dis
4: the, the distinction? Well, yeah. I- in very simple terms um decriminalization is not uh directing people or putting putting people into the criminal justice system for, for using and, and possessing drugs so you know in, in in the case of half a dozen or so police force areas in the uk for instance first-time offenders go through a kind of driver's awareness style drug education course um but obviously you know the schemes receive criticism that they don't go far enough obviously second third and fourth fourth time people caught with drugs you know still face um the possibility of yeah criminal criminal sanctions and then yeah if we're regulating drugs and legalizing them many models um have been put forward many many um of the most serious under consideration come from Transform drug policy foundation. And yeah, broadly speaking, you would see drugs regulated in, you know, similar way that, you know, many other um, addictive and harmful drugs are regulated through pharmacies and, you know, depending on, you know, the the type of um, addiction you might have, you might be able to, have a drug prescribed to you and otherwise you might be able to buy it um, under you know, certain parameters.
1: Kojo, do you want to just wrap up on that as well, just on, on decriminalisation, legalisation, where where we should stand?
3: Yeah, I think that um, one thing that we want to consider is decriminalisation, I think, is obviously a necessary first step. Um, you know, not treating people who um, are using substances with the criminal law, I think is an immediate improvement on the status quo that we have at the moment. But there are questions around what does that do with the global supply chain of drugs, thinking about how a lot of drugs are produced in kind of Global South countries. You mentioned in the introduction, the impact of the war on drugs has had on places like Mexico and Colombia, um, Afghanistan. All of these questions um, are some things that are not immediately addressed by the decriminalisation of drugs within one jurisdiction. Um, so I think... Um, you know, these are, there's many different varieties of drug policy reform and that there is a lot of different alternatives on the table, not just in terms of particular models, but also which models might work for particular drugs. You know, we might think of safe consumption rooms for opiates. We might think of legalization for cannabis. We might think of decriminalization for cocaine. So it could be a lot of different stuff for different substances. But the main thing is to recognize that this is a an issue that, isn't just a kind of more decadent um, kind of personal liberty issue, which is often the way the drug policy is um, described as, but this is something that touches on racial justice, economic justice, and more importantly, on how the left wants to recreate the world for the future, even thinking about environmental justice with the way in which the war on drugs has devastated large amounts of agricultural um territory in the world, with aerial fumigation policies, crop eradication policies, devastating places in the Cali region of Colombia or rural Afghanistan. These are all touching upon this question of drug policy reform and the left should be front and centre in this conversation.
1: Both of you, thank you so, so much. That was just brilliant, comprehensive stuff, touched on so much. And do follow both of them on social media, Kojo uh, K-O-J-O-K-O-R-A-M um, and you can also follow Matha on. I'm just looking up now. I was just literally having to look on my phone. Here we go. Oh, it's just his name. Uh, it's Matha uh, M-A-T-T-H-A, and then B U S B Y. So do follow both of them. They're both uh, fantastic uh, and do huge amounts of brilliant work in this field. So thank you so much to both of you, and have a great Sunday. Thanks, Owen.
4: All take the
1: best. care. Take care. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Nice. Take care. Um, so we are now going to talk about Julian Assange, who faces extradition. Now, those extradition proceedings are obviously in motion, but at the same time, there is a so-called Belmarsh Tribunal, which is putting the United States instead on trial for the crimes committed in another so-called war, the War on Terror. Now, we're joined by the brilliant uh, philosopher Sreko Horvat. So, thank you, so, uh, Horvat. So, thank you so much for joining us, Sreko. Really, really appreciate it. How are you doing?
5: Hi, Owen. I'm really glad to be here with you. Even so, if the topic you... is a bit tire, dire, but uh, I think it's very important to talk about it uh, just before the extradition hearing on Wednesday and Thursday.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd, to be honest, anything we talk about right now is pretty bleak because that's 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 the world we're stuck with, unfortunately, for now. Do you just want to explain to people exactly where things stand? So a lot of people obviously might have been following on and off this saga, but just a kind of basic summary. What is the plight Julian Assange currently faces? You know, what's the case? And where do you think stand with the extradition proceedings?
5: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what is important to say is that this is not new. I mean, this case has been dragging on for almost more than 10 years. Uh, Julian Assange has been uh, entrapped and trapped at the Ecuadorian embassy in London for more than seven years uh, you have all seen the images uh, how the police was dragging him out of the embassy and what basically happened I think is really a scandal which uh, uh, which which is an embarrassment for the for the United Kingdom I would say it's an embarrassment for Ecuador of course who gave him the political asylum at the very beginning uh, but it's also an embarrassment uh, for the UK uh, where you actually have CIA, Uh, a secret service uh, uh, from the United States intervening into your sovereignty, uh, intervening into your soil, basically kidnapping a journalist and putting him uh, in a prison, Belmarsh Prison, which is in London. Um, He's there already for more than two and a half years. Uh, What is happening now is that the United States is going to appeal, uh, which is happening uh, on Wednesday and Thursday, and they basically want a publisher, a journalist, uh, for 175 years, 175 years uh, in prison, in a high-security prison in the United States. Uh, I think this is a matter which concerns all of us. I'm not a journalist, uh, uh, mm-hmm. I'm also not a whistleblower, uh, but I became active in this case because I saw that this is something which will have consequences, uh, uh, well, not on the future, it already has consequences Uh, on free speech, on democracy, on what we can actually publish, what we can say. Uh, And it's a scandal that a man who didn't commit any crime, but he actually revealed the war crimes in Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, surveillance programs uh, by the CIA, uh, that this courageous publisher is put on trial, uh, while the United States, Washington, United Kingdom, Ecuador, Sweden are not put on trial for their crimes. And this is why we founded the Belmarsh Tribunal, uh, which actually happened two days ago uh, in Westminster at Church House, influenced by the famous Arthur Rassen Tribunal.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a
3: bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
1: you know what 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 were the kind of focus what were what were the the kind of issues that it raised in terms of the crimes committed in the twenty years since the so-called war on terror was announced almost exactly twenty years ago
5: yeah, for us for us at uh, the progressive international uh, who organized this event, it was very important to gather physically because. I guess okay we are now over the screens again and everyone is quite fed up with uh, with the digitalization of all social relations and for us it was important to gather physically at a historical place where the house of where the parliament of the united kingdom was having these meetings uh, during world war 2 and to gather people who were in one or the other way involved in the case or who are experts, lawyers, politicians. We had, for instance, Tariq Ali, who was an original member of the Burton Russell Tribunal, who traveled to Vietnam to investigate the crimes of the United States in Vietnam. Uh, we had Daniel Ellsberg, who in 1971, I know that previously in the context of the war on drugs, you were speaking about Nixon. Uh, so we had this uh, historic figure, historic whistleblower, Daniel Ellsberg with us as well. Uh, Edward Snowden, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, many people gathered two days ago and uh, in the next days we are going to publish uh, the verdicts and the findings of the Belmarsh Tribunal. But I can tell you already now that uh, the findings uh, paint a much dire, dire picture that I think the broader audience could imagine. And this is uh, crimes which were committed uh, by the United States, by the, but also by the United Kingdom and their allies. Uh, these are war crimes, uh, killings of civilians and journalists. Uh, which was revealed by WikiLeaks in the collateral murder video or in the Afghan and Iraq warlocks, rendition, torture, spying of CIA. Uh, we had people at the tribunal uh, who witnessed that uh, when they were visiting the Ecuadorian embassy, well, you know where it is, just opposite to Herod's in the midst uh, of uh, a British civilization. Uh, 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 and uh, they were spying on everyone who came in, including the lawyers. I mean, I found myself on the CIA list as well, Uh, uh, and I didn't work for WikiLeaks, I didn't uh, publish any documents or whatever, just because I went into the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, So you can see that uh, this case uh, on so many levels uh, is an embarrassment uh, for United Kingdom, especially recently, one week ago, it was revealed uh, that the CIA uh, uh, had a plan to either kidnap or kill Julian Assange, you know, imagine if that happened in, and something similar happened in Istanbul, and you've seen how many people jumped uh, from their chairs and said, this cannot happen uh, in a country, what kind of di- dictatorship, authoritarian system it is in Turkey, if you can just slaughter a journalist, or even remember Navalny and how many liberals uh, uh, came out to support Navalny. Also, we couldn't really say that his politics is something which uh, uh, me or you would support, you know, his uh, racism or right-wing politics. Uh, but nevertheless, everyone supported him. So in the case of Julian Assange, what happened is, of course, uh, a character assassination, uh, which was also supported by those who were actually working with him, who were very happy to work with him at the very beginning. The New York Times, The Guardian, uh, who then turned against him and actually were used as, a, as weapons of mass deception. I mean, the best example is when Paul Manafort uh, supposedly visited the Ecuadorian Embassy, an article which was published in The Guardian, and something which never happened. So what you can see here is that for 10 years, the character assassination started starting with Sweden and then to the DNC leaks and so on. A character assassination was being, uh, 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 was being fulfilled which was then actually with Mike Pompeo leading to to, to plans to really assassinate him. And what is happening now is that he is slowly being assassinated in london at belmarsh prison for more than two and a half years so i think that's something what concerns all of us it shows the cynicism uh the double measures of the liberal elites who will support navalny or someone else but won't support julian but what we can see and i think the belmarsh tribunal is contributing to it uh the support has never been so big all major human rights press freedom organizations stood for julian at the belmarsh tribunal we also had so many people who were actually revealing the crimes of those uh, who were revealed by, by Julian Assange. And I think that's very important. Although our tribunal doesn't have any kind of legal you know, authority, uh, but, well, that's in the tradition of the Rastas Arter Tribunal.
1: On the cycle war and terror itself, one of the many bleak aspects of it is that everything that those of us who opposed it said, actually, things actually turned out even worse, probably, than many of the dire predictions at the very beginning. If we look at the calamities that enveloped Afghanistan, uh, the absolute horror of iraq but also of course we can see more broadly we can see the drone war for example uh we can see uh you know the i mean libya technically wasn't i suppose under the aegis of the war on terror but it was another catastrophic uh western war which caused calamitous again consequences in in libya so all these interventions to call call them use that clinical slightly clinical term have been a calamitous failure on their own terms and in terms of human consequences. And the so-called, and it's worth pointing out, the baker rage strong Chelsea Manning, but the, the 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 exposure, you know, that WikiLeaks of, of the crimes committed by the West had a big impact. But I suppose, are you optimistic or pessimistic in terms of how much, you know, it's one thing that we can say in the worst possible way, vindication of our arguments, not that there's any satisfaction given the consequences. But after in the aftermath of the West's, Uh, of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, how do you feel in terms of, you know, preventing these sorts of horrors happening? Have we, have things, you know, have those movements which WikiLeaks were part of, have they succeeded in some way or or do you feel pretty depressed about future prospects?
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm rarely being optimistic, uh, not because I'm pessimistic, but I quite like this phrase by Terry Eagleton, hope Without optimism, I think we definitely need to hope that things will get better, uh, but uh, we also have to prepare that, that they will get much worse. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the drone warfare uh, uh, because there is currently in solitary confinement in a high security prison in the United States a very courageous whistleblower called Daniel Hale, uh, and at the Belmarsh Tribunal we had the Director of Forensic Architecture, e. Al Weizmann, talking about uh, the drone warfare in Palestine and other places, and this is a big topic. Uh, and it's also uh, uh, very sad that such a person as Julian Assange is imprisoned, that he's silenced, uh, because I will just remind you of the book, uh, uh, which was published in 2014, I think, but it was uh, written or the event Uh, uh, on which the book was formed happened exactly 10 years ago, when the Arab Spring was happening, you know, when there was hope that in in these parts of the world uh, social movements could take over and so on. 10 years later, of course, uh, there's not much hope anymore. And the name of the book is When Google Met WikiLeaks. And I think it's very important to speak about it today precisely in the relation to drone warfare and how in the meantime, uh, uh, actually, uh, the technological apparatus, to put it like that, the industrial-military complex, uh, accelerated, developed even further. I mean, this is what WikiLeaks started to, 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 to kind of shed light on, Edward Snowden as well. Uh, uh, but nowadays, and then CIA, of course, I think the biggest embarrassment for the CIA and why Mike Pompeo really wanted to, to kill Julian Assange, which is now revealed, The biggest embarrassment for the CIA was the so-called World 7 revelations by WikiLeaks, uh, which revealed this massive surveillance program by the CIA. Uh, So coming back to that book from 2011, uh, um, I mean, there is not not much reason to hope because actually what Julian Assange uh, claimed in that book, and I've also also had many conversations uh, when I was visiting the Ecuadorian embassy with him, is that Silicon Valley will accelerate things uh, is accelerating and taking over Uh, our basic infrastructure. I mean, at that time, it was Google, which was in close relations with Washington. Uh, Of course, the connection between Google and and, and, uh, Hillary Clinton or their role in Syria, that's well known. You can find it in WikiLeaks. But nowadays, just look at the United Kingdom. I mean, I just came back from the United Kingdom, but your country, mate, I'm sorry to say so, is in a much, much worse state than ever. Just look at the penetration of Palantir, you know, the company by Peter Thiel, into the NHS. Uh, Just look how the pandemic is serving the cashless society and how everyone is already being surveilled. I'm not here a conspiracy theorist, but this is a fact. You know, in London, I couldn't pay anything in cash anymore. Uh, And who will take over? Who has the infrastructure? Look at our program now. Uh, And I'm not criticizing you, you know. The Belmarsh Tribunal was live streamed on YouTube. You know, how does this look from the perspective of Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos uh, uh, when us, the progressives, the subversives, are using their technology in order to criticize them, uh, but we are still in their bubble, you know, we are using the, uh, the presuppositions which they have laid uh, uh, down, you know, for us. Uh, and Julian Assange was constantly speaking about it. You know, I remember, for instance, I think that was five, Six years ago at the Ecuadorian Embassy, we had a very long conversation which lasted very long. That was before the CIA started started to spy on the embassy, before Ecuador cut down the internet. So the situation was still kind of we could have intellectual conversations, he was following the news and so on. And basically his main point was that the main source of future profit for Silicon Valley, he said that five or six years five or six years ago, is transport. And look today when you have on the one hand, uh, uh, the images of Chief Bezos or Elon Musk uh, uh, you know going into the privatization of space, of course heavily state funded, like always like the invention of the internet and then you have venture capitalists taking over, or look at Uber or look at Amazon. it is all about transport uh, and Silicon Valley is now going there, so what I really miss is julian 's voice on technology. I think this is really crucial to speak about. Uh, the war on terror in terms of technology because also what edward snowden revealed is this massive surveillance program uh but nowadays with the pandemic i think the situation is much much worse and in that sense i don't have much optimism just hope without optimism
1: a slightly bleak uh point to end unfortunately but nonetheless it's okay like, it is what it is uh but nonetheless if it's uh such an honor to have had you in, and so eloquently explained the current situations. We really, Eloquent,
5: really... Eloquently in my Balkan English, but I hope your, your viewers no. don't want mind, Yeah.
1: I think it's uh, no, your, your English was more than clear, but we, we really, really appreciate it. And do check out Shrako's brilliant work, brilliant philosopher. And uh, thank you so much, and uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thanks so much for joining us.
5: Yeah, you too. Everyone should enjoy Sunday a bit. <laughs> know,
1: yeah, I'm gonna I'm going to have a nice little nice little stroll in the sun. It's cold, okay. but I will be Me out. Too. But look, take care. It's okay, see you in a bit.
5: Bye. Thanks. Uh,
1: take care. Um. So we oh, Katie, I've just thrown you right in there. Sorry, right. there was absolutely Hi, no build up of any description. We are where we are. Wait a minute. Before I continue, I just have to show everyone the full beautiful flag. Look at that. Loving it. Loving it, Katie. So just to explain. So Katie is uh, someone I, one of, is one of my highlights on Twitter. Twitter is obviously just a nightmare. Um, uh, uh, a, a website of horror. But Yeah, them, it's
6: the worst website on the internet.
1: The absolute well, worst, worst.
6: mainstream website. They're, they're all worse websites.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, good point. I mean, some pretty grim <laughs> ones. But it's still, it's horrific. But Katie's one of the chinks of light. Always, every time I see a Katie tweet, great, great content for free. They have to pay for it and Katie's a brilliant uh, do check out Katie's YouTube channel. What's it? How would people find it actually? Just um, if you just
6: search for my name, so it's just here Katie Montgomery, so it's Katie and Montgomery spelt the opposite way around to what you'd expect Katie with a Y and Montgomery with an IE. Yeah, that um, is really
1: confusing. Um, <laughs> sort it out. So, uh, Katie, the reason we are blessed with your brilliant uh presence is because I mean, part of me thinks, <laughs> should we talk about them and give them? any any attention but i suppose it's just a hook isn't it so the so-called lgb alliance a ludicrous organization set up uh entirely to fight trans rights uh, some people try and gaslight us into pretending they were set up to champion the interest of same-sex Uh, attracted people who aren't being catered for by anybody else. Uh, They're not. The only interest they have is is issues of fighting uh, trans rights. Um, In the transphobic hellscape, that is the United Kingdom. So they had their conference last week, uh, which was loads of fun. And they had a disco, which was... uh, I I was going to put up a clip, but my producers hung over, so it's just me doing (laughs) this today. Uh, But it's just... just look up the LGB Alliance disco if any of you wanna you do get do go for a long walk afterwards. It's traumatic. I
6: saw I saw a good comment which said, um thanks to LGB Alliance for combating the harmful homophobic stereotype that all gay people are stylish and good at dancing
1: <laughs> to be fair, i already single-handedly had achieved that so the LGB alliance did not need to set themselves up <laughs> like, i already had that catered for without transphobia so well done. Um, if you want bad dancing and a lack of style without transphobia hey katie just explain who are the LGB alliance and um what was their conference all about
6: Right. So, yeah, the, as you mentioned, they're a group who are trying to pose themselves as um, pro-gay rights, but like without trans people. So obviously when we talk about gay rights, people often say LGBT. And that's like a common acronym here all the time. And they're trying to say LGB without the T. And the way they pose themselves is, oh, we just care about gay rights. We just don't care about trans people. That's it. We're not transphobic. We're just pro-gay. And I mean, that's that is an issue on its own because um all homophobia and transphobia comes from similar places it comes from often the same people and when we look at transphobic arguments today and how trans people are treated in the news it's identical to homophobic arguments of the past and how gay people are treated like in the news and in the media and it's it's all just recycled so to think that you can just separate those two things is naive at best but on top of that there's two main issues with that. And I think that often the media tries to present it as like, oh, trans people are just jealous that there's this gay rights organisation and they're grumpy because they're not included. That isn't the issue. Like, as I just mentioned, that is that could be an issue. But the issue here is that they are actively, directly campaigning against trans rights, and not just in a mild way. So, for example, they are a, a signatory on this thing called the WHRC Declaration, which calls for the, like, almost total gutting of all trans rights internationally. So this calls for a complete and total ban of all trans women and girls from the women's spaces they use today. So that'll be including banning people like me from going to the toilet at work, changing rooms, all this kind of stuff. It calls for a total ban of trans healthcare. So this is the internationally recommended expert healthcare uh, for under 18s. And it calls for loads of extra wacky things like a ban of research into helping trans women with pregnancy is a possibility Mm. in the future, which is, you know, at the moment, just some kind of sci-fi dream. Um, And that they've called for a ban of legal protections against um, misogyny and transphobia for trans people and make it legal so people could misgender and uh, say your old name and stuff, like, with impunity. So make it legal so that someone at work could just harass me and then we couldn't do anything about it. So, you know, this is already a huge issue. This is a very extreme position to take. But they're also involved in campaigning against a conversion therapy ban, which is one of the things that the LGBT community in the UK is kind of focusing on at the moment. The government has said they're going to do a conversion therapy ban and they're dragging their feet because, of course, they are, because they're rubbish. Um, And the LGB Alliance is involved in pushing against that. And, like, for anyone who doesn't know conversion therapy is, is evil, I mean, it's effectively torture and it's where you try and force a... Uh, LGBT person to no longer be LGBT and you'd think why are these people claiming to speak for gay rights opposing a conversion therapy ban and the reason is is because they want conversion therapy to be legal for trans people so they don't like any ban you couldn't bring in a ban that just banned it just for trans people just for gay people because it's all again it's the same thing it's all intermingled it's come from the same people it's the same ideas so they're worried if if conversion therapy got banned for gay people then it would affect trans people as well so it, like you know they are directly campaigning against our rights and i think the media always just misses this like it just tries to pose it as if it's some brave gay rights group going on their own and it's that's just nonsense and also as as you kind of mentioned um like i don't know how you feel as like a you know gay man have LGBT alliance done anything for you i mean they've <laughs> done literally nothing there's no positive action that they've
1: done Well, they've slightly riled me, I suppose. Um, (laughs) Well, everyone
6: needs a good riling, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean... uh, Oh, no,
6: railing? No, anyway. um, (laughs) 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 On a Sunday. On a
1: Sunday, the day of rest. (laughs) Not for me. (laughs) But yeah, so
6: they just had their their conference, and the conference was, you know, the who's who of anti-trans people in the UK at the moment. Uh, A lot of straight people. Um, And I think that's worth noting. One of their founders was a a straight woman who actually um, raised like hundreds, um, well, thousands of pounds, maybe a hundred thousand pounds. I can't remember the exact figure to try and um, get some judicial review to get it so you can ban trans women from toilets and things, which failed, luckily. But yeah, there's quite a few straight people involved in this. And as we see, usually their supporters are straight cis men who are really angry suddenly for the first time in their lives about gay people. If they can use them as an excuse to attack trans people but yeah their conference had um several speakers including some they i know they had a stand from this group whrc who this extremist organization who i was just mentioning who have written this declaration um and uh one one event that i was actually discussing yesterday uh, in a podcast if anyone's interested um was uh a Trans lady called Jen Ives kind of went undercover there and had, you know, discussions with people. She is bisexual. So technically she should be welcome there. Um, But was received a load of transphobic abuse when she outed herself and uh, it's all, yeah. So it was a kind of a disaster. Um, Yeah. I think that I, I feel like the whole point in their conference, you know, they spent so much money on it. They've got all this like flashy artwork and like all this kind of stuff and all these, all these speakers and they picked a very official venue. I don't feel like it's to win over LGBT people, win over, you know, get the general gay public because they, I think everyone knows, you know, most gay people who have heard of them know that they're just not doing anything pro-gay rights. The idea is to just look official for politicians because, mm-hmm. like, the current Conservative government doesn't seem to like LGBT people because so it's done absolutely nothing for us so far. Um, and I feel that it's part of this attack on Stonewall and other... Like larger LGBT rights charities that they mm. want to replace them with some like absolute nothing group that doesn't do anything, that has said in the past, well, if you oppose gay marriage, that's fine, you know, it doesn't matter, um, because then there won't be a credible opposition if the government does want to take our rights away.
1: It's interesting you point out about the, um in terms of the role of, of often straight people who are signal-boosting this organisation, in terms yeah. of the prominence it gets... It is overwhelmingly from people who are who are straight, uh, and often opposed to LGB- broadly LGBTQ rights. Lots, lots of straight people with rec- you know records of saying terrible things about bisexual people. Well, including um, one of
6: their speakers was um, a conservative politician, uh, mm-hmm. Jackie Doyle Price, who voted against gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another um, politician. Baroness Nicholson mm-hmm. who is still openly opposed to gay marriage mm-hmm. uh, who is one of their biggest supporters and they continuously thank like you know these people are just unambiguously anti-gay and are some of their biggest supporters and I think that alone should raise red flags for most gay people
1: and some of those politicians as well who've been prominent I don't just oppose for example gay rights but many of the many politicians some of the politicians who oppose trans rights for example oppose abortion rights for example yeah
6: I mean, uh, it, it's a, a um, classic combination. Usually, if you're one, you're all three.
1: It's interesting, though, The um, in terms of, because I said a lot of straight people, but you get this, I, I'm just bringing up this article, which was written by James Gray. He's a brilliant um, journalist. It was for Gawker talking about gay men who are so-called gender critical, uh, which is yeah. basically intellectual veneer for transphobia. I just want to read it out because it's just really funny. There's a certain kind of gay man who embodies the gender critical vibe. He's white, middle-class, and exactly 45 years old. And even though he works as a corporate lawyer, thinks teenagers with dyed blue hair are an oppressor class. His Twitter bio reads something like, snarky prick taking aim at the tyranny of twaddle, or why drink the Kool-Aid when you can have a lovely GT His pronouns are sod, uh, slash off or John <laughs> on. He's not especially interested in gay culture and instead prefers the standard fare of middle brow English liberals, George Orwell and the Great British Bake Off, Saul Nitskin and Strictly Come Dancing, comedy panel shows called "I'm Afraid I Haven't the Foggiest," and popular history bo- bodies books uh, titled "Bothersome Broads: A Feminist History Told Through Twelve Grating Girls." Anyway, the whole it's just funny um, that's because that, that's very true. <laughs> for those who ever come across gender critical men on Twitter, the most tedious people ever created their bigotry aside um they will know what that is in terms of though as a trans person i mean obviously we're laughing at certain aspects here but obviously this is not funny for trans people um and this is you know we talk about a lot on the show we talked about stonewall last week we've got obviously the main lgbtq civil rights organization under concerted attack when transphobic hate crimes have quadrupled in the last few years and homophobic hate crimes have trebled um, and those things
6: are related. Like well,
1: actually, ah, so actually let's talk about those. Let's I'll ask you about those two things. So, firstly, just in terms of what you know, every day you've got this something new. There's like a Times article or there's this conference yeah, or every day. Every day. So what what impact? I mean, just what impact does that have, you know, on, on trans people? But I am also interested, and I do I think it's I need to be careful as a cis gay man that I don't go, well, actually the real issue here is it's ricocheting into homophobia. The transphobia is on itself, obviously, a very, very big yeah. problem. But it is worth observing; it is ricocheting. And Chris Bryant, of all people—a very, uh, I suppose, a Blairite Labour MP—tweeted yesterday about how it's becoming fashionable again for people to openly hate LGBT people. That's because this it's, its like a gateway drug, transphobia, and then you get the whole shebang. So that first thing about being trans d- during this just horror show, and then that broader point about how about how it broadens out.
6: Right. So yeah, I mean, I think that there can't be a trans person in the UK, you know, who hasn't been affected by this in some way. It is truly relentless. And maybe I'm more involved in it than a lot of people. You know, I spend a lot of time on the internet and I'm, I'm aware of what's going on. But I get people message me all the time, you know, scared because of the, you know, the feeling of where is this country going are we going to start losing rights we've had several major court cases in the last couple of years um you know put forward by gender critical people where if it had gone badly for us we would have actually lost real rights that we have and need every single day Mm -hmm. and on top of that there's the media which is constantly scaremongering about us saying that we're coming for children that we're we're dangerous to women or just every kind of made-up thing often completely fabricated um and with just no pushback, no, the whole media spectrum from, you know, the times to the guardian is publishing to wall mm-hmm. transphobia and it's, it's terrifying and it's really emotionally draining. Um, I've particularly over lockdown. I mean, the one thing that gives me life is I can go on the internet and I can see all this garbage written about trans people and get all this transphobic abuse from people, which I get literally all the time, hourly, Constant transphobic abuse on the internet. Mm-hmm. But then I can go out into the real world and see my friends and go to the pub and go to work and just live a normal life. But in lockdown, obviously, that wasn't an option. And it's just so oppressive. You can't go on the internet anywhere without it just coming up in comment sections. You know, on YouTube, some celebrity you like has to have some transphobic opinion and suddenly everyone has to discuss them. You know, your favorite author comes out as transphobic. We just had another one this week it's it's so tiring and it's so stressful and it just feels like they're shooting fish in a barrel really like we don't have any trans politicians we don't have any trans friendly media outlets major ones we don't have um you know it just doesn't feel like we have anything it's not a two sides it's not a debate they keep saying they want a debate but they're just talking on their own um which is it's very stressful and it's, it's definitely got to everyone, everyone I've talked to. I haven't talked to a single trans person and I've talked to hundreds of UK trans people. I haven't talked to a single one that has said I felt fine over this, like the last five years. Um, but yeah, and then in terms of how it relates to homophobia, I do think that obviously being a trans person, you notice the transphobia going on of course any any when you're a member of any group you're going to notice the prejudice against your group more and so it's going to seem like a big deal to you and other people might miss it if you're a cis person you might miss it particularly if you're cis and straight and you're not really plugged into the LGBT community um <clears throat> but I do think it's getting to the point where people are starting to notice I don't mm-hmm. think you could have missed it now and mm-hmm. I think that gay people are you know the strongest allies of trans rights have been cis gay people um, because they can just see it's all the same stuff again. But some have had the luxury of just being able to ignore it or maybe they're just not really quite sure about trans people. And it's now turning into a general attack on all LGBT rights um is starting to cause them to be a bit uncomfortable and to wake up and see what's going on and i think that's a good thing so i do think it's important to highlight that this does affect gay people you are not going to be able to just sit this out if you're a cis gay person even if you're one of the good ones who just fits in with you know society and you don't have blue hair or whatever the things that they all like to whine about um but the reason this happens is because these little thought patterns where you dehumanize some group because they don't quite fit into patriarchal society how you want and these little excuses like oh i don't hate trans people i just hate the crazy activists and then you call every single trans person an activist Mm -hmm. that is Mm the technique that they used on gay people i don't Mm -hmm. hate gay people i just hate the activists or i don't hate the people i just hate the sin i just think that it's an ideology i don't like trans ideology and when you learn these little tricks in your mind to justify your transphobia it's so easy to just expand those to gay people. Once you've learned the phrase, I don't hate trans people. I just hate trans ideology. And then you're standing shoulder to shoulder with homophobes at the LGB Alliance conference because they want all the allies they can get. And then you hear them say, instead of them saying, I don't hate trans people. I hate trans ideology. They say, I don't hate LGBT people. I hate LGBT ideology. And you're like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. It's just Mm -hmm. the same argument. And then you're won over to that. And I see people being radicalized. I've, I've watched people in real time become, go from just have concerns to I'm gender critical, I don't hate trans people to I don't hate LGBT people and suddenly they're supporting all these homophobic politicians and voting for Donald Trump because he's not trying to erase women and gay people. Um, so, it, you know, it, it, I think it should be scary for anyone. Uh, not This is
1: just something that trans people are going to deal with. Just finally, amongst this horror show, what do you think, how can people be allies, whether they be cis gay people or straight people? Uh, like what what would you as a trans person, What's your, you? what would you ask people in terms of how they can be better allies?
6: Right. I think on on the smallest scale, if you know a trans person, then just let them know that you're there for them. I think that you could maybe think like, oh, I don't want to kind of be imposing or that they, you know, they know my, well, I'm friendly with them. They're my work colleague. That's fine. But. Lots of us do feel quite isolated and it's quite difficult to bring up. I Sometimes when I'm talking to my friends, I'm like, how's it going? And I just feel like, do I tell them about how the latest attack on my human rights and tomorrow is the court case and I might have no rights tomorrow? Like, it's such a big deal. And when people do reach out and they say, it's okay, I support you, I'm here for you, this kind of stuff, that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, take some time to just learn about... The basics of what's going on. Follow some trans people on Twitter. It doesn't have to be me um, or on YouTube. It 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 should be KTO. It should be (laughs) It can be me along with others. Um, and just get a, a range of perspectives. Um, and I think one thing as well that's quite important is at the moment, if you stick your head up above the parapet and say, I support trans rights, or I think JK Rowling was transphobic or something. Especially if you do not on social media, you're likely to get a huge, horrible pylon, and that's because you know. Especially if you're uh, a bigger figure or you work for a, a big organisation or something, because they want to shut this down hard and fast. Mm-hmm. And some people do back down because it's it's horrible. Like mm-hmm. uh, experiencing this is horrible. And I think if you if enough people start doing it, then they they won't be able to target everyone, and the the like the bile will be spread out more but also it's it just shows that it's not acceptable i think a lot of what drives transphobia is that people think that it's okay they think it's normal they think they won't be judged for it and for a lot of people for their whole life they haven't been this is only really the first time in recent history where being transphobic will get you any pushback at all and they don't like that and they want to look around the room and if they want if they say something transphobic and someone calls them out, they want to look around and see everyone doing nothing in response, and then they'll just imagine, oh, everyone agrees with me. And if everyone stands up and is like, no, that's disgusting, like, don't do that. Then it kind of shames them into addressing their own irrational prejudices, I think.
1: Katie, you are a superstar. As I said, one of the one of the highlights of an otherwise horrific website. But really, always just on point. You know, given the amount of just as you say, just awful, awful transphobic abuse that you are subjected to, your Twitter feed. It, and, you, and there's no right way of responding to it, but you, it's just you've got a very funny Twitter feed. Just something oh, It's funny. That's right. It's just a funny, joyous Twitter feed. Often just in the, in the best possible way, satirizing um, some of these horrific bigots that you have I to think- deal with
6: yeah the when when the I mean I get some of the most extreme stuff, and in a way, the only way you can deal with that is to show people and be like, Look, look how ridiculous this right. is look this is these arguments are disgusting or violent or just plainly irrational, and if you don't look with your friends and laugh, then you will just cry <laughs> so that's my strategy.
1: well, you do it so wonderfully, honestly um it's been such a pleasure to have you. do follow Katie on Twitter, which is. Katie's name, Katie, K A T Y, then Montgomery, <laughs> but with an I E, not a Y at the end. Yeah. Just, to, just to confuse everyone, just keep everyone on their toes, Katie. Yeah, That's you just so that. that
6: people write my name wrong every single time, and then I have to correct them. And do, check out, her, <laughs> do check out her. Do check
1: out a YouTube channel as well, which you can find again. It's just, it's just a name. Her, her confusingly spelt name. Um, but it's been a real pleasure and solidarity and love as ever. And it is important, you know, one thing I. would i suppose i would say given the LGBT, i mean i think it's interesting for a while because the most prominent anti-trans rights organization was a woman's place to begin with and they used that that whole i mean it is a cult they behave like a cult so let's just call them a cult Um, they they use that to go well this is basically an intra-feminist argument and you know therefore you know what right do you gay men for example have to intervene and then they set up the lgb alliance which is the main it is the main most prominent organization now which people use now to describe people like myself as homophobes now i'm apparently (laughs) i'm a homophobe because i support trans rights but i mean all i'm saying is you know they're doing that to try and uh divide lgbtq people and let's not i don't think we should pretend it'd be easy to just glamorize lgbt communities as one big happy family where we're all yeah. standing together we've got big problems of racism big problems of things like disabilism i mean misogyny lesbophobia there are huge genuine problems of prejudice and bigotry and transphobia for that matter
6: and but... just a wide range of thought too i mean exactly it, being lgbt exactly. is just a thing that you're like born so it exactly. just affects everyone just randomly across society
1: but it is important though that we say um, you know, an injury to one is an injury to us all. We are LGBTQ. We're not going to stop being LGBTQ. The T is an absolute integral part of all LGBTQ spaces, anyone who goes to LGBTQ spaces. Trans people obviously have played uh, absolutely incredible roles throughout our history fighting for our rights, including, of course, at the first Stonewall, uh, the Stonewall Riot, which gave an the name And still are. Exactly. <laughs> And still are people like Katie. So, you know, trans people have fought for the rights of gay people like myself, cis gay people like myself, and it's our duty and responsibility to do the same and stand by our trans siblings, which we will keep doing despite the failed efforts of these bigots to divide us, which they will never entirely succeed. I mean, as I say, we do have these problems to deal with, but we will we will fight and we will we will win and we will stand yeah. with you to the very end. Lots of love, Katie. Take care, and I will speak to you soon.
6: Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah.
1: Lots of love. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, oh, hello. I just pop that. You see, my producer's not here today, as I've said. So it's just me doing it. You can see it's been a bit ropey all the way through. So I keep making the guests full screen. <laughs> anyway, lots of love to you in a minute. Um, thank you so much, everybody. What a, what a range of topics. Blimey. Really covered it. Educa- I found it very educational, as ever. I basically do these just to get, essentially, a private lecture tour from guests and then you Know everything else is a bonus. Um, I just want to do a quick uh thank you to all of our uh super chats. So we have had David Barata, thank you so much, Gunner Station, Mellow Maggot, love these names, Alexandra Barnes, Gwyneth V Doherty, L Trojet. um, uh, Mark Gorman. Um, have I said Gwyneth already? Gwyneth V Doherty, I think I did, yes, Livianne Uh, who's saying, uh, going to follow Katie on all channels everywhere, love and solidarity, lots of hearts, trans liberation now, absolutely. Um, Also, uh, Sine Bazu. thank you so much, everyone, for your support, as ever. And we will use the support you give us to build, to create these documentaries. We've got, as I've said, this great documentary, uh, looking at how working-class communities are Uh, Well, in terms of property development and uh, the power of what you'll see what we're going to do with this documentary is going to be very, very exciting. And it's giving the megaphone to working class people, working class communities who are otherwise ignored and marginalized by most media outlets. Uh, but it's looking at how this working class community is being ripped apart by property developers. So very much looking forward for that. Um, you supported us. You made the Tory and Labour Conference documentaries possible and all the other documentaries that we've done. So thank you for your incredible support, everybody. Um, just to wrap up. Oh, yeah, I should say I'm speaking in Yeovil in a week's time. Um, not my natural heartland. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, Labour got about 5% of the vote in Yeovil in the last election. So it's going to be interesting. Will anyone even come? Um, I mean, <laughs> a couple of people got in touch in Yeovil and were like, mm, interesting choice. But it's the Yeovil Literary Festival. That's what I'm going. So I'm just popping along for that. So if you look up Owen Jones Yeovil, you'll find it. Uh, I'm there next Sunday evening, 8 o'clock. So if you are one of the few lefties in Yeovil or not, don't have to be a lefty, you do come and say Hi. Uh at the octagon. Um cheers everybody for that. I am now gonna go. I think do you know what I feel like I feel like a cheeky little Sunday roast, which I'm having later. I hope you're all having uh just a great Sunday. And thanks to all our guests. As I said, support us on patreon.com forward slash onj 84 You make this the documentaries, everything possible. We've got some great interviews coming up. We'll be live again next Sunday. Um and um I think that is basically it. I know sometimes I do a rant about something, but to be honest with you, I think we've covered so much that just just do your own rant. You don't need my rant. Just have a little five-minute rant about anything. There's quite a lot to rant about. Um, and I will see you soon. Lots of love, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting. And I certainly did. Do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash OrangeJones84. Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing
4: your budget?